so yeah, we're in the middle of the art of neighboring, just asking what if we loved where we live. People say, is there an agenda to it? And the yes and no, the agenda really is just to get to know your neighbors, just to get to know their names. It's just a quality of life issue. You know, when you talk to people and you get to know them, that kind of stuff happens. Care, concern, and love. And so things like that are happening all over our church. We've got this week and next coming up, uh, that, and then we'll be done with it. And so I want to encourage you to keep on getting to know the names of those people who breathe air in the apartments and houses next to you. God made them, loves them, and has put you next to them, that they might come to know him. So this morning, let's continue on in our series. We've been moving through the books of First and Second Peter, this, and this morning we come into chapter 2 this morning, and you can see on the screen the scripture reading is verses 4 through 8, and then 13 through 21. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It's God's word this morning. And as we've said, we've been moving through the books of First and Second Peter and seeing these incredible themes and resources that Peter has given us to help us live out Jesus' command to us to love our neighbor, our literal neighbor. And Peter wrote these letters, these epistles to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith in the Roman Empire in the first century. They're struggling with their faith. They're struggling with how to reconcile the government's treatment of them. And he says to them, listen, Continue to live as these great citizens and neighbors to the very government and the very people who are seeking to harm you. And this morning, in light of that, we come to this amazing theme that actually, it seems, in terms of logic and in terms of reasonableness, as to be counterintuitive to what we think the words mean. And this morning, we come to the idea of Christian freedom. Christian freedom. And of course, 
right away our culture objects to the words Christian freedom. Are you kidding me? It's sort of like saying, you know, military intelligence, (laughs) you know, how can these two things go together? And some of you may get that later. All right. Our culture says, you know, Christianity, it isn't freeing at all. Christianity gets in the way of freedom. Well, why does our culture say this? Well, columnist Mike Monono from the Huffington Post, he, he puts his objection to Christianity and Christian freedom like this, and here he's going to articulate the view of much of our cultural and, and educational elite today when he says this. He says, quote, as a humanist and a progressive myself, I'm critical of any religion which in doctrine or practice places false barriers to human actualization or discourages or forbids inquiry, education, and personal evolution. I believe the combination of science and liberal arts can foster a sustainable open society with a culture of opportunity for all. And I'll admit that religious fundamentalism, at a time when science and humanism provide such real hope for humanity, scares me. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying, of course, Christianity isn't freeing. No, he's saying it's actually enslaving, right? He's saying... Christianity, faith, is a barrier to freedom. And of course, what he's giving you is just what's called iRobot philosophy. You guys heard of iRobot? Maybe seen the movie? The central character in the movie is a robot named Sonny who discovers he's been pre-programmed by his maker to actually take down and destroy an army of these, you know, uprising terrorist robots. And once he's done that, once he's accomplished that, Sonny turns to Detective Spooner. And of course, this is played by Will Smith. And Sonny the robot says, now that I've fulfilled my purpose, I don't know what to do. Detective Spooner says, I guess you'll have to find your way like the rest of us, Sonny. That's what it means to be free. Now, the movie writers, of course, they've put into Will Smith's mouth our modern understanding of freedom, that if we have a divine directive by which we organize our lives, we're just robots. We're just robots, and we make robots of others. Therefore, being fully human, he's saying, is to live without limits of any kind. But years ago, a man named Martin Luther, who knew a thing or two about freedom, who himself actually inspired a whole movement of freedom and changed the world. He looked at First Peter 2, and he wrote this in his little book that he called On the Freedom of the Christian. Here's what he said. He said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Interesting. He's getting here at the paradox that lies at the heart of Christian faith. He's saying that all people, and Christians in particular, are most free through service to others and most free through obedience to God. And that's a concept, church, you know this, that is not just hard and difficult to grasp, but it's a concept that runs right against the grain of our culture in every way, which means that most of us, if not all of us, 
deeply struggle with how to reconcile these two concepts. So let's try to do that this morning. Let's sort of rumble, if we could, with 1 Peter chapter 2 in the idea of Christian freedom. Let's ask three questions of the text and of this idea and sort of see what answers we can get here. First, let's just ask, what is Christian freedom? Is it a barrier? Is it enslaving? But number two, what is Christian freedom for? How does it show up? How does it used? And finally, number three, how can we get ultimate freedom? Let's begin here, number one, and just ask, what is Christian freedom? We'll, we'll begin here in verse 16, when Peter writes this, here's the heart of the, the idea. He says, live as what? Free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. What does he say? Live as who? God's slaves. Now, this word slaves isn't the, the word slave as we think about it. It's the Greek word doulos, which means a bondservant, a totally different kind of station of life in the Greco-Roman Empire. Not the kind of slave we think of in the 19th century, 18th century African slave trade. A different kind of person altogether. The doulos was someone who retained his rights as citizen, but who was bound and lived to serve and please his master. So Peter's saying here, live as free people by living as God's bondservant. Or you could reverse it. Live as God's bondservant and therefore show you're truly free people. And he goes on to articulate a number of ways that that looks like, and we'll get to those in a few moments. But I don't want to rush past this underlying principle here and the argument here. He's saying true freedom is living as what? God's bond servant. And again, even for those of us who call ourselves Christians, man, that idea, whoo, that can feel a little claustrophobic. You can sort of feel the room shrinking in on you, you know? You sort of react on the inside, even though you know that the most amazing Christians that you know, the Christian people that you most admire, and people who are dying for their faith all over the world today, live this out cheerfully and with conviction. Why do we react this way? Oh, it's because we swim in the sea of our 21st century Western American culture, which defines freedom, hear this, in almost exclusively negative terms. Here's what that means. We believe today we are only free if we are free from all obligations or commitments. We're free, if, if we're only free from our promises, from duty, from sacrifice, we're only free. If we're free from anyone else's demands or constructs, only free if we're allowed to do what our heart wants to do in every given moment. Recently, iconic fashion designer, Diane von Furstenberg, you may know who she is, she's got like a television show on cable these days. She wrote in her memoir, just came out, called The Woman I Wanted to Be. She said this, I, when it comes to relationships, I don't believe in rules. I think it's the heart that should talk, and therefore, relationships are a game. Yeah, there it is, right? No rules, right? Follow your heart. Relationships are games to be played the way that you want. And she's saying that's freedom. Freedom is being allowed to follow your heart. And yet the Bible says we're only free if we're slaves to the heart of God. How in the world can the Bible make this outrageous paradoxical claim? Let me give you three examples to try to help you. All right. 
Not too long ago, because I'm like a good Christian and pastor kind of person, I was fasting, all right? And by the end of the fast, I was hungry, right? Go figure. And and I decided it would be a good idea to break the fast with something yummy, like a pizza. And because I like spicy food, I don't just order any kind of pizza. I order what was called on the menu, the Pizza del Fuego. (laughs) Fuego. And I didn't just eat some of it, I ate all of it. And the next day, of course, my body paid for it. Now, you may have heard from Dave, I just turned 40 on Friday. Yes, thank you. Entering, yes, going, gaining momentum as I go, I can feel it, yeah. But I can recall a time in my early 20s when I went on a fast twice as long as that one. And then when I broke it, I went to Bennigan's and essentially cleaned the kitchen out. You know, it's uh, hamburgers, french fries. Uh, I've got a list here. Soup, salad, bread, chips, salsa, chocolate cake, uh, wings, chicken fingers, and apple cobbler to wash it down with. And you know what happened the next day? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I, my body didn't skip a beat. I was back at it, right? Now, I could insist. I'm still 23. I can eat whatever I want to, right? I may be free in my mind to do it. <laughs> but am I free in my body? No, I'm not. Therefore, to continue to live in the freedom of good health and a happy digestive system, I restrain my food choices, you see. If I restrain myself in one area, I'm free in another. Second example, many of you, including myself, talk about kids today. You got children who are taking music lessons or voice lessons of one sort or the other. Now, to get my three sons to practice piano some days is like trying to convince three cats to take a bath together. That's about what it looks like and feels like there is in those moments to to quote the Bible. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Am I done yet? I don't want to go first. Piano is so not fun. And here's the best one. I can only do it if daddy's home. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But unless they practice, unless they're confined to the piano, they never experience the joy of the freedom that they can experience playing in a recital in front of a crowd or playing a piece of music with grace and emotion and poise and therefore to experience oh, the richer and deeper freedom of experiencing and playing music, something beautiful. They restrict their behavior in other ways. You say, all right, Morgan, I'm getting it right. To just say that true freedom is the, is the absence of restrictions, I can see that doesn't cut it. Uh, that means that discipline, right? Discipline alone, discipline alone will free me. Morgan, you're saying if I, if I want to be free, I just, I just superimpose lots of discipline and rules into my life of any kind. Will that make me free? Well, no. And here's why. Third example. Because most of you grew up in American schools, maybe some of you believed like I did, the line, when you grow up, you can be whatever you want to be, right? When I was a kid, I liked the idea of building things and making things out of wood. I made a couple of pine wood derby cars once upon a time. You know what those are with the race thing. Uh, I took shop in high school. One summer in college, I worked this construction job. I dug post holes. Uh, I, I painted houses, you know, painted houses, uh, I, you know, poured concrete. The only problem, I was 
terrible at all of it. My, my Pinewood Derby cars, they never won. Uh, the cutting board I made for my mom for Christmas fell apart right after she got it. And my boss berated me constantly for my slowness and incompetence. See, and things became crystal clear for me that mechanical things were not in my future. Ministry was when, uh, or not along into my marriage. And we, Carrie and I bought our, our first home and it came time to hang the curtains in our home. And uh, she watched me stare at the cordless screwdriver like my dog stares at my laptop. You know, like, what is this thing? And she got up on the ladder, installed the hardware while I stayed down below and ironed the curtains. Thank you very much. Now, you, you may think of me as less of a man for that. I prefer to think of it as effective leadership delegation, see, because the job got done, didn't it? Yes, and thank you. Now, here's the point. I could imagine all day long I should be building you a high-end home, but the truth is I do not have the mechanical ability necessary to do that. I could restrict myself, discipline myself to only doing mechanical things, building high-end homes, and the best I could ever deliver to you would be a flimsy cutting board for Christmas. Therefore, here's the idea. True freedom comes neither through the, pre- excuse me, the absence of restrictions, nor merely through the presence of restrictions, but by living in accordance with the right restrictions. Freedom comes, church, by living in the right restrictions. The restriction of the piano brings out the best in the musician who's made for it. But the restriction of shop class would be death for me, probably literally, right? True freedom comes from surrendering to the right restrictions, the ones you were designed for. You hear that? Is a fish on your lawn free fish flopping on your lawn no why not maybe it's chosen to flop out maybe it followed its heart out of the water and onto the land is it free no it's not why isn't it because it's not in the environment it was designed for right is it restrictive to put the fish back into the narrow place of the water well in a technical sense no but in reality what is it it's liberating now what the fish was designed for comes alive it shimmers it swims it moves gracefully oh the the restricted place of the water is liberating for the fish the fish isn't crushed by the right restrictions it's set free this is what peter is saying surrendering to the right restrictions, to the heart of God, brings out an incredible set of freedoms. And of course, let me give you one example. The greatest freedom, the greatest example of this is a love relationship, right? I mean, if you want, if you want today the deeper and richer freedom of a love relationship, the intimacy, the security, the personal support, affirmation, all of those things that an authentic love relationship brings. you got to restrict yourself in thousands of ways. Hmm? Do you know the last time I went to the movies and hung out with the guys without clearing it with my wife first? Like circa 2000, the year 2000, right? You say, well, who's in charge of that relationship? You know, who decides stuff? You know, well, I do. I decide. That's why I decided to ask for permission. (laughs) Brother, you go ahead and be free. (laughs) You go wherever you want to, whenever you want to. You just may find yourself 
restricted in other areas. I'll leave it at that. A committed love relationship is the greatest example of how the restrictions of love bring out the greatest joy, see? And that's why, church, when you say to God, I'm yours exclusively, oh, I belong to you, God, I was made for you, you're jumping back into the water, your soul was made to swim in. But when you say anything else to, to, to your boyfriend, uh, to a career, to even a political party, oh, I exist for you. You control me now. You think you're choosing freedom, but you're just a fish flopping, gasping, dying on the lawn. Oh, church, if you'll say yes to the heart of God, you'll find yourself free. If you can't, if you find that tension inside, you can't say no to that or no to that and yes to God, that tension you feel, that's your soul gasping for air, gasping for the water of God's heart for you. So true freedom, number one, is living freely as God's bondservant. That's what it is. Let's ask now, number two, but what's it for? How do we use this incredible freedom that God's given us? How's it supposed to be expressed in our lives, especially as neighbors. Let's look at that. That's number two. And uh, in verse 17, Peter actually shows us. He goes right on in verse 17. He gives us immediately four things, count them, four things that Christian freedom is for. And you can see that there. So how do we show our neighbors? We're both free people and God's bond servants. He says, number one, show proper respect to everyone. To love the family of believers. Three, fear God. And four, honor the emperor. Now, we just sort of touched on the fear God part, number three, there. So I want to look at one, two, and four here at length, especially one and two. And with this question in mind, let's ask again, what's Christian freedom for? How do we show we're free on the inside? Let's look at those things, one, two, and four. First, he says, respect everyone. Respect everyone. Now, depending on what translation you use, the word there can turn out to be honor or something like that. Which means, of course, to give weight to. Think about that. Peter's saying, give weight, right? Give honor to everyone you meet. Now, for a few minutes, I want to actually talk about what this doesn't mean. Okay, what that doesn't mean. Because one of the most common ways we interpret this is through this thought. We think and our culture makes us feel sometimes, to honor everyone, to respect everyone, uh, to, to respect the people I meet means I continue to allow people to abuse me, right? Take advantage of me or abuse people that I love. And especially in the ministry world, I've just seen it in many pastors' lives, true confession here, including my own at some points. We think because the demands of church life are so high, right? I neglect my family because I absolutely have to Take the calls, emails, texts, and requests for meetings of everyone who sends them my way, no matter what time of day or night. Now, is that what honor and respect means? We can't mean that. Does it mean to neglect my family or your family if you work because of too many demands from the work side? No, because if you do that, then you're not actually honoring everyone, are you? Not honoring your wife, not honoring your spouse, your children. 
in the University of Houston, thank you, author and researcher Dr. Brene Brown has written a number of books on shame and on vulnerability, on how to break shame in people's lives and people's expectations of you. And in her latest book called Rising Strong, she writes about a speaking engagement that she took not too long ago at one time because she was shamed and guilted into it because she thought she was respecting everyone and she was you know spoken to sort of like this would you come and speak at our thing remember we supported you dr brown when you were a nobody when nobody knew you and if you say no to us you show that you think you're you're too big now you're too important for the little people yeah, so she took the engagement, right? She was feeling guilty. She ended up being stuck, this is her story, in a, in a hotel room at the conference with this lady she called Couch Wiper. Couch Wiper. Uh, it was a lady who, when she walked in, was eating cinnamon rolls on the sofa in the hotel. Didn't get up to greet her. And when she was done, she wiped her cinnamon roll gooey hands all over the hotel furniture and said, what? It's not ours. Oh. Then she got up and started to smoke a cigarette in her room, even though it was a non-smoking hotel. And of course, Brene Brown standing there with her, her bags in her hands, hadn't even sat down yet. And the woman badgered her about caring too much about the rules, about the furniture and the rules and such. And Dr. Brown basically said at that point, her own feelings of judgment toward couch wiper were so heated that she could barely make it through her talk. And then the next day, all the way home on the flight, she was irritated with every single passenger in person that she saw or ran into. She was judging the parents on the plane because they were letting their kids eat too much candy. You know, the really big person she judged for taking up too much space on the aircraft and so forth and so on. And, and when she got home, she was snappy with her husband, said all she wanted to do was go out for chicken fried steak and cream gravy, you know, to, to numb her feeling on the inside. But then her, her husband reminded her, of their newly agreed upon budget Uh, and they couldn't do that and so she snapped at him she says i rolled some lunch meat around a cheese stick ate it in three bites and went to bed (laughs) and her experience and emotions as a researcher set her on a quest to ask and find out the answer to the question what kind of people are the most compassionate the most honoring and respectful of others And here's what her research showed her. She said, quote, I had discovered that the most compassionate people I interviewed also have the most well-defined and well-respected boundaries. It surprised me at the time, but now I get it. They assume that other people are doing the best they can, but they also ask for what they need and don't put up with a lot of crap. I live the opposite way, she said. I assumed that people weren't doing their best, so I judged them and constantly fought being disappointed, which was easier than setting boundaries. Boundaries are hard when you're a pleaser, hell-bent on being easy, fun, and flexible. Compassionate people say no when they need to, and when they say yes, they mean it. They're compassionate because their boundaries keep them out of resentment. She said, when I do something because I feel pushed, pressured, guilt-tripped, or shame into it, I expect people to be appreciative (laughs) in addition to being respectful and professional. 90% of the time, they are none of the above. What's she saying? Two things. First, to honor everyone, to give way to everyone, means first, not overcommitting because you're a people pleaser whose self-worth is wrapped up in what everyone says and thinks about you, right? And because if you overcommit, think about it, in the end, you'll just disrespect and dishonor those people because you can't keep 
your commitment. And second, because she's saying, if you're resenting people because you think they don't value me, they don't see me, if you're angry, you rehearse, you know this, the conversations in your head about how they don't appreciate you and value you. It's likely, church, but it's because you don't see your own value, which the gospel says you have in an overabundance. Do you want to honor everyone? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do you want to respect everyone? Oh, don't fall into resentment and judgment by expecting others to see what only God can see. And if you do both of those, do you know how you're going to feel on the inside? Free. (laughs) You're going to feel free. Now, now that I've set up all of this, let me tell you what you don't do with what you just heard. All right? You don't weaponize that against the people close to you. You don't say, husbands, here's my boundary. Honey, if you don't cook me my favorite meal every night, uh, then you don't deserve for me to come home to you. That was my boundary. The pastor said to set boundaries. I heard him say it. You can't make him take it back. It's my boundary. That would be using your freedom as a cover-up for evil or for getting what you really wanted all along. Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. Honoring everyone can't mean not ever sacrificing, giving, serving, or loving those around you, which is why he goes on now to give us the second thing in the list. He says, love the family of believers. What does this mean? Well, again, top of the passage, you may remember we read, Peter gives us this incredible imagery. He says Christians are like these men living and breathing rocks. These stones that God is handcrafting into this temple, a kind of a new temple. He says, you also like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Karen Job, commentator on 1 Peter, said about this, the imagery, it's a great thought, of the living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. So how are you most free when it comes to this, when it comes to the idea of Christian community and the idea of church? Well, one idea our culture likes today is the idea that you can maybe sit home, right? Not come in. I'll just catch the podcast. On the flip side, I know some of you have done this because you've told me you've done this, all right? Sit in the privacy of your apartment, catch the podcast and say, God, change me today, right? Change me. Free me, God, from this problem, but you can only have you know, the 35 minutes in my bed today. Basically, what you're asking God to do is to change you because at home, because you're maybe afraid of church, I get it, afraid of getting hurt, the church is so this or that, right? Or here's the one that people use. I mean, the church is so Western, right? So consumer-driven today, I'm not going to be a part of it. I'm going to stay at home and listen to what I want. Oh, man, the height or depth of irony, What Peter is saying is this. It really is. You only access the freedom of the life-changing power of God as you come into the church. This committed community of people. Uh, For years, you may have heard of him. His name is Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a a popular preacher in in, in London in the mid-century, 20th century. He used to forbid his staff to record his messages. He wouldn't let him do it, even though the technology was available. But eventually his staff wore him down, uh, and I'm glad they did. History is grateful. But the reason he resisted 
was theologically right. He said, if you're just listening to the message on the go, in the bathroom, or as you're jogging, it's all good, but it's not the same experience as sitting in the congregated and collected people of God where the power of God is present in a unique way through the work of Jesus Christ in his people. See, the sermon can either be a product you consume on your own or something you participate in by being fully present with your fellow brothers and sisters, your family in Christ. And that's just step one. And loving the family, he said, but you know it's, of course, got to be more than just showing up because he uses the word agape. Agape, the family, right? He's saying in a family, you got to love them. And you know that in a family, of course, if you're in a family, you got kids, you know, every functional family member has got to do more than just show up, right? They've got to do both input and output, right? Input and output. Input. You come in a family, you receive love, affirmation, encouragement, instruction, right? But it's not really a family unless the family members also do output, right? Do output. In a sense, the family, your family, isn't free to be who God's made it to be. It's going to be trapped and limited unless every person is not just receiving and taking, but also giving, giving. And in the same way, our church, this church, Mosaic Church, will never be free to be a neighbor to the city until every family member is not just doing input, but also doing output, serving, giving, sometimes just doing the chores in the home that got to get done for the family to be free. See, that's what it means. Love the family of believers. And briefly, number three, he says this, also, to honor the emperor. Now, just going to dip my toe in this one, but I'll put it like this. If Peter could say in his day, honor the emperor, when the emperor was Nero, who both persecuted and ultimately executed him, surely you and I can honor our nation's leader today. See, to honor does not always mean to agree with, of course. doesn't always mean to keep silent, but it does not mean you can slander them, curse them, insult them, and Facebook counts. Every idle word, God says. Can't do it to him or her, no family, no matter the party. You say, well, I can't do that. Well, then you're not free, Peter says. You're not free on the inside. You're too wrapped up in your identity in something else another kingdom that's all which brings me now to a final thought for this last point okay as much as peter is saying these are ways to use our christian freedom he's also showing us these are also indicators of the presence of freedom in our lives in other words if we can't do these things respect everyone love the family honor god honor the emperor we're not really free not really free Brings us to number three, finally. How can we get ultimate freedom? I hinted at it earlier, but let's come full circle with this and with what Peter's showing us here. 
A few years ago, a lady named Francois Sagan, she's a famous French novelist, she's an atheist, she gave an interview about her famous and very sordid life in the French newspaper Le Mans. She had been friends with Hollywood stars, writers, Truman Capote, all those folks. She'd been adored by the public for her plays and books, and in an interview near the end of her life, she said that she had been satisfied, she had no regrets with how she lived her life. And the interviewer asked her this question, fascinating, said, then you have had the freedom you wanted. Sagan said, yes, I was obviously less free when I was in love with someone, but one's not in love all the time. (laughs) Apart from that, I'm free. Now, she says, again, that's our modern understanding of freedom, right? If you got any restrictions on you at all, you're not free. If any restrictions, man, you're inhibited, you're bound up, it's regressive. To be free is what? To be free from everything. But did you notice what she said? She wasn't free when she was in love. When she was in love. And she's absolutely right, church. If our definition of freedom is no boundaries at all, because if true freedom is no boundaries at all, oh, then love is the worst thing in the world. It's awful. It's terrible. It's a straight jacket. It's awful. It's a taskmaster. Love is the ultimate freedom killer, and you ought to avoid love at all costs. Why? Because the more in love you are, the more likely you are to give up your freedom, aren't you? According to our culture, love and freedom can't exist together. But wait a minute. Stop the presses. If love is a straitjacket, right, a barrier to your human evolution, then why is it when you're in love, you feel the most alive, the most free in your heart. You feel like Buddy the Elf, right? Man, I'm in love and I'm in love. I don't care who knows it, right? When you're truly and deeply in love, not only do you feel the most alive, the most free, but also the most willing to do the most ridiculous and costly and expensive and humiliating things for another person. Why is that? It's because our modern definition of freedom is junk. It's junk. It's not true. Our modern definition of freedom is basically selfishness. Selfishness. But thankfully, all the experience of love, true love, is so powerful, its beauty can break us through and break us out and show us the ultimate expression of freedom is love, which is inherently restrictive and always, always seeks to serve another at its own expense. You say, how can I get that in my life? Like this. Peter says, verse 20, remember, this is love. Christ suffered for you. For you. What does it mean? What does this mean? Well, what does it mean when you see anyone being killed for another? What does it mean when you see anyone, church, being sacrificed, sacrificing themselves for someone? Why was Jesus so constrained? Why did he limit himself to a body on earth? And do a cross of wood on Calvary. Why was he willing hmm, to do the most expensive, ridiculous, costly, and humiliating thing ever? Why? Because he was absolutely in love with you. With you. With me. With us. With his bride. The family of believers. The church. And when you see that the most free being in the universe, Jesus. And he lost it all because of love. Oh, now you can trust him with your heart and use your freedom to live for him. See, saying Christianity is too narrow. It's too restrictive. It's like saying love is too narrow 
and too restrictive. Because if Jesus has done it all for me, I can trust him with my heart and freedom. Does a fish lose its freedom when it's put back in the water? No. Does it become less free or more? More. And to become a Christian is to jump back and to be put back into the water. Our souls were made to swim in. Church, we can be free. Be free if we'll be and live as God's bondservants. Hope you can say amen this morning.